This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This weekend, the True False Film Fest documentary Juggernaut rolls back into downtown Columbia after the outdoor semi-fest of 2021. Once again, film directors from across the country will be spending the weekend in Columbia to introduce us to their films and in some cases to the subjects of their films. The True False Film Fest organisers know that some of their regular attendees are not yet ready to be at indoor events. But for those who are ready to jump back into fest life, there is an enticing lineup of documentaries that bring us intimate portraits of other people's lives. Plus, there are art installations, musical performances, filmmaker talks, and of course, parties. So this week's show is True False All The Way, a chat with the Fest's new artistic director, Chloe Trainer, about what films she's most excited to introduce to Fest audiences and how films get chosen for the Fest. Then a conversation with Chicago-based film director Kevin Shaw about his film, Let the Little Light Shine. And finally, a peek behind the filmmaking curtain with Moroccan-American filmmaker Rita Baghdadi about the film she's bringing to the fest called Sirens. So... Get your popcorn. After two years, True False is back. And it is showtime. It was back in late September last year that Ragtag Film Society's new artistic director, Chloe Trainer, was first on Speaking of the Arts. And at that time, we were chatting with each other across the Atlantic as Chloe was still living in London and the 19th True False Film Fest was still five months away. But since January the 1st, she has called Columbia her home and now all the work of the past few months is coming together for this weekend's True False Film Fest. Welcome back to the show, Chloe. Hi, Diana. Thanks for having me back. I know the last eight weeks have been a full-on whirlwind of work for you, so you probably haven't been anywhere except home and work, but how does it feel to now live in Columbia, Missouri and be on the cusp of your first True False Film Fest? It's very surreal, actually. Um, (laughs) It's very nice to be here after many months of talking to people over Zoom, but you're right, I haven't seen much. I have actually been to see The Big Tree. That was my number one priority. Good job, the Burr Oak. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. But otherwise, yes, it's been lots of office and then home to make sure that everything gets done. So I'm looking forward to, after the festival, getting to explore Columbia a bit more. I recall that your expectations involved dappled sidewalks and friendly people, and certainly the first one you probably haven't seen much of this year yet. Mm. How have your expectations and the reality of Columbia, Missouri, matched up? I think it has met my expectations. It's also been plenty of surprises. Um, Often that tends to be the language barrier. Um, (laughs) I didn't realise quite how much difference there was there. Um, I'm constantly mocked in the office for how I say my H's, for the fact that I say Z as well instead of Z, which maybe that isn't even a British thing. Maybe that's just a Chloe Trainer thing. No, I say Z. Oh, okay, good. That is a British thing. Yes, Okay, I can take that one. But yeah, but people in general have been very friendly and welcoming. Obviously, it's a strange time to move to another place considering the pandemic is still kind of ongoing. But 
my expectations have been met. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. Well, great. I am very delighted that you are here. And amazingly, as we were just saying before we went on air, we haven't yet met, even though we literally live two blocks from each other. But maybe after the fest, we can get together for, it won't be tea and biscuits, it'll be coffee and biscuits in your case. Coffee and gluten-free biscuits, but you know, we'll make it happen. Yes, definitely. (laughs) So this year's fest will inevitably feel a little different than the last time we all gathered downtown in 2020. There'll be probably Probably, I'm guessing, fewer people than usual, as there are lots of people who still aren't ready to be inside in large groups. There's no Jesse Hall as the largest of the film venues. How are you anticipating that it'll be different than past years? I think this year is going to feel kind of like an in-between year. So it will definitely feel familiar in certain ways because it is back downtown. And like you say, we have decided to not go ahead with all of our venues that we traditionally used when we were downtown before, which was mainly a kind of safety precaution. And so those venues won't be in use and there will be less people, like you say. But I think that kind of energy will still feel very familiar to people who've been to the festival before. I think I'm also kind of looking forward to having a bit more of a mellow pace. Um, Obviously, having lots of people here and everything being really busy and running between everything is really amazing. That's what's really exciting about a festival. But as we're all kind of easing back into doing things that way, I'm actually seeing it as a bit of a blessing, both for us and for Columbia, to kind of have a year of uh, somewhere in between those two things. Yeah, definitely nice for your first year that it isn't quite as full on frenetic as the past years that you get to ease into being here and being part of the festival. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's chat about some of the films. This year, if I've counted correctly, there are 33 films and 20 shorts. Yes. Jolly good. I can count still. (laughs) Amongst which you've got Volcanologists, a Lebanese all-female thrash metal band, an alpine cow called Vedette, a doc filmed entirely in a virtual reality community, a sex worker in Athens, and interestingly, given the events of recent days, two films shot in Russia, plus a four-hour, six-minute-long look at how Lithuania left the Soviet Union, which is very on point. Tell us about your highlights. You just named a lot of them, or referenced a lot of them, actually. (laughs) So I think... Let me pick some things that you didn't reference there. So one of the films I'm really excited about this year is Children of the Mist, which is from a first time female director from Vietnam. It's a really incredible observational film that takes place in the North Vietnamese mountains. And it follows a young girl who is kind of stuck between her family's traditions and modern society. It's really fascinating in terms of the relationship between filmmaker and subject and where that line is drawn between how involved filmmakers get when they're making films with people. It's, yeah, it's really beautifully shot. It's it's one that you will be on the edge of your seat, almost shouting at the screen um, because you become so invested in these people's lives. So I'm really looking forward to sharing Children of the Mist with the audiences of Columbia. Also one that you did reference, Fire of Love, that is the latest film from Sarah Dosa. And it's this really incredible, all archival, with some touches of animation film about Katia and Maurice Kraft, who were the globetrotting volcanologist couple who, yeah, they say um, they loved two things in the world, each other and volcanoes. (laughs) They basically travelled the world documenting volcanoes and eruptions to try and help understand how like humanity can exist on a world where there is volcanoes with safety 
uh, kind of at the forefront of their mind. But they shot all of these incredible films of them incredibly up close with eruptions going on. There's a scene with an acid lake that nearly gave me a panic attack. <laughs> they just kind of were out there living on the edge um, and doing it all for this complete dedication that they had to their life's calling. And that's really one for the big screen that I would recommend as well. And if I'm allowed to pick one final one, I would probably say Mr. Landsburgis, which is the four hour <laughs> film that you mentioned. If anybody has missed going to the cinema and wants to fully immerse themselves in that experience, then you can, on both Saturday and Sunday, spend four hours in a dark room with some of the most incredible archival filmmaking that I've ever seen. It pieces together the story of Lithuania leaving the USSR, as you said, and it is about how a country forges independence. It follows a man called Mr Landsbergis, who starts out at the beginning of the film as a kind of unassuming person who is part of a political party who are campaigning for independence, and he, in the end, becomes the prime minister of Lithuania. And an interview with him kind of runs through the film, but mainly it is this amazing archive that's taken from lots of different sources, edited together in an almost seamless fashion. Some of the scenes had me completely, like my jaw was on the floor, just the stuff that they have is so amazing. So yeah, I'd really recommend checking out Mr. Landsbergis as well. I believe there are four world premieres at this year's festival. Is it as big a deal as it sounds to be able to show world premiere films at True Falls? Yes, um, the premiere conversation is interesting. True False has never been a premiere festival. It's never been something that is super prioritised in the programming, which is something I've always really liked about True False. But it is a huge honour to be able to world premiere filmmakers' work. The films that we have this year are all incredible films that we're really, really excited to be the first people showing them. Um, and we really value and appreciate that the filmmakers trusted us with that moment in their film's lives it's yeah it's a big deal you know people have spent years making these films and this is the first time that they'll get to share them with people and I think the really unique audience that we have at True False is what draws those people um to to coming to us with their premieres because you know you get to have that local audience feel where you actually meet with people who you might not have ever thought that you would get to talk about your film with as well as kind of the documentary community who also come out to the festival so it's this really wonderful blend of both things and I'd recommend checking out those films from the program. And those four films are After Sherman, It Runs in the Family, Let the Little Light Shine and Gods of Mexico. Give us a little insight into how the program the festival is put together. You are one of the programmers, but you're also the person in charge of the artistic arc of the fest. And the films that we see are a tiny percentage of the films that the programming team has viewed and reviewed and made decisions on. How does a film get chosen for True False? Yeah, so it is a long process and it's a very collaborative process. So I work with three incredibly talented programmers and a programming coordinator as well. So Robin Robinson, Amir George and Eric Hatch, um, and then our programming coordinator, Lindsay Arrington. We all work, um, yeah, we all work incredibly hard on this process. So essentially, 
the programmers are all watching stuff independently and then we will put stuff forward if we think that we would like it to be in consideration for the festival. So every film that we wanted to consider, the four programmers all watch together or they watch it and then we come together to talk about it. We discuss, we debate. Those conversations are some of the most fascinating uh, experiences that I've had in this job because we each come with very different perspectives on cinema and they're some of the most rewarding moments really so yeah we talk about the films and then we make decisions and that's how they end up in the program were there any films that you totally loved but didn't make the cut for whatever reason there's always a few yeah often it's actually because the filmmakers have kind of other plans so yeah, there was a really beautiful film this year that sadly decided not to play with us because they were um, hoping to premiere somewhere else, which is great for them. I think that's a really great platform for them. Simultaneously, you know, people, um, when films come into the world, often there's then negotiations and deals going on with distributors and films getting bought. And then it kind of becomes a much more complicated conversation because it's not just the filmmaker deciding there's lots more stakeholders and although it's always heartbreaking when you lose a film it's also something I really care about is you know films having the right kind of life cycle that they deserve and so although I think True False is a great platform for films like it's not necessarily in everybody's plan for what they want to achieve with their film and so you always have to have a bit of grace with it and just kind of say you know that's what's right for that filmmaker and that film and when it does play somewhere else like I'm always the first person to tell everybody to go and see it at that other place. I'm always curious about which movies will get chosen for the two opening events on Thursday and Friday plus what will be the closing movie and and sometimes they are not movies that I had on my initial list. But once I see that you have chosen as a team to put them in these prime spots, and I think, oh, I better go and see them then. So this year on Thursday, you have The Balcony Movie, which was not on my original list. You have Fire of Love About the Volcanologist on Friday, which was on my list. And then Sunday, the closing movie at the Missouri Theatre is Miha. Tell me what it is about these movies that gained them what I think of as those kind of coveted opening and closing spots. Why did you choose these three? Mm. So, yeah, a big part of that conversation is around the audience of those events and also the emotional journey that you want people to go on in the course of that event. So opening night, for instance, you have the Jubilee right before the screening. It's kind of this joyous moment where everyone's coming together. People are seeing people they haven't seen, probably at this point in years, you know, people are going to be having a drink, having a nice time. Everyone's really excited for the weekend ahead. So you probably don't want to play something super dark and depressing on that night. And The Balcony Movie is a really kind of warm hearted film about community and about human connection. And that felt really important to us, considering everything that's happened um, over the past few years to play a film that is really about the sustaining relationships that you can have within a community. And then thinking about reality bites and the closing reception, it's a similar thing with maybe a slightly different feel for what you want that journey to be for the audience. But especially with a film like Miha, I think that's a really, really beautiful film from a really exciting emerging filmmaker. And it's a film that we, we really want to encourage people to see. So there's also sometimes kind of that thought of, are people going to go and see this film based on our one line description or do we need to like signpost it a bit more to try and make sure that people mm. take a chance on it? Because we know that once they see it, they're going to love it. So, yeah, it's a 
there's lots of back and forth on these things every year. Um, and I'm really happy with the films that we have in those slots so far. One of the many endearing features of the Fest each year is the True Life Fund, wherein we, the viewers, get to donate money to the subjects of a film who usually have are of limited means, they don't have a lot of money, and they put their life on the line sometimes to let the filmmaker tell us their story. Tell us about this year's True Life Fund. Yeah, so this year's film is called The Territory, and it is from a filmmaker called Alex Pritz. And he basically embedded himself in the Amazon rainforest with the Ura'ewawau indigenous people who have been fighting to protect their ancestral land in the Amazon rainforest. And so the True Life Fund this year is actually raising money for the indigenous surveillance team there within the community. They are a group of people who have been incredibly... um, what's the correct word? Um, They've suffered a lot. There is a lot of very difficult stuff going on around their land. Um, The government in Brazil like to look the other way to everything that's happening. There's land grabs. It's quite a dire situation. And they basically reclaim their own narrative and start documenting what's happening with with cameras and making films, which was something that was really exciting to us as a true life fund film. If we could help support that work of people using film to kind of change that situation, that felt really, um, really exciting to us. And also the film is made incredibly collaboratively with that community. And so that was also exciting to us. I think there's lots of interesting conversations to be had around authorship and autonomy when it comes to documentary storytelling. And so with this film, knowing that it was made in collaboration with the community who are being documented, that felt really important to us. Well, there are so many other things that I would like to ask you about, but I do so appreciate that you are short of time and it's such a busy week for you. But I am so glad to have another Brit living here in Colombia. And and thank you so much to everybody on the True False team for making the fest happen this year and battling through what I'm sure were many moments of doubt and despair about whether we'd be able to have an in-person fest this year. So thank you so much to everybody and thank you to you for taking time to chat during the busiest week of your year. And I will see you at the fest, Chloe. Great. Thanks so much, Diana. One of the four world premiere documentaries at this weekend's True False Film Fest is Let the Little Light Shine, which follows a high-performing, top-ranked African-American elementary school in Chicago, the National Teachers Academy. Back in spring 2017, the elementary school was threatened with closure by Chicago public schools so that the school could be transformed into a new neighbourhood high school which would serve wealthier, mainly white and Asian students. But Chicago public schools had a fierce adversary in an organisation called Chicago United for Equity, which quickly began to mobilise residents, parents, students and educators to fight for the elementary school's survival. The film is directed by Kevin Shaw, whose debut film in 2010, The Street Stops Here, about Hall of Fame high school basketball coach Bob Hurley, was shown on PBS and ESPN across the country to rave reviews. Since then, he has won multiple awards for excellence in sports reporting and a National Sports Emmy. In recent years, he has worked with Oscar-nominated filmmaker Steve James on two documentary miniseries, America to Me and City So Real. And I am delighted that Kevin Shaw is my next guest this evening. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thank you, Diane. I appreciate it. There are directors who amble into documentary filmmaking because the right story comes along at the right time. And there are directors who know from the get-go that their life's work is in the documentary world. What was your route into documentary making? 
I think my roots was, you know, you mentioned uh, The Street Stops Here, which was a documentary that was based in basketball and sports reporting and sports documentary. And that's really where my career started. My career started in sports television, and I've worked in television for more than 20 years. I started my career at ESPN, and I began telling sports stories on the highest level, working with them and then going freelance and working with a number of different sports networks and entities. And so uh, I was always really driven, though, by the idea of, of the story and finding a compelling story and one that was more of a human interest angle just wasn't about, you know, who won the game or et cetera, et cetera. It was more about the people involved and where they might have came from and what type of adversity they might have had to overcome. And so I think it was some of the experiences that I had in doing those stories that I was able to catch the eye of, of somebody like Steve James, who at the time was looking for uh, directors to help him on the project America to Me, which was looking at race and education in a high-performing suburb right outside of, uh, of Chicago at a high-performing high school. And Steve and I had crossed paths being in both in Chicago and both working in some respect in the documentary landscape. He obviously deeper in that social issue area. And that was a, a, an area that I really wanted to venture into and start to tell some stories that were outside of uh, the sports world and really dive into some of these social issues, looking at social justice, looking at race, looking at education, looking at underserved communities, looking, looking to find a voice um, that was usually being ignored. And so it was that relationship that was built with Steve that kind of helped me dive into that that area of documentary film. And I think the beginning of that relationship helped lead me on to eventually doing uh, Let the Little Light Shine. You went to school, I believe, on Chicago's South Side. So you had some idea of the school system. But I'm curious, what were the most unexpected surprises when you made that first dive back into the education system with America to me? I think when you look at America to Me and where that story took place, it takes place in Oak Park, which is a suburb that borders right on the west side of Chicago. It is a high achieving school. It's a school and it's a neighborhood that people want to move into and it has a, a great reputation. But despite all that, it did have this achievement gap between its white and black students. And so that was probably the most surprising thing. And one of the reasons is why we did the, the miniseries was to get behind why was there this achievement gap with a school that was very well resourced, but yet it would seem to be only serving uh, one segment of its student population and not the students of color who attended Oak Park River Forest High School. So that was really the reason, one of the reasons why we wanted to dig in and, and follow some different students and, and parents and their families and educators from that space and, and try to see what was going on there and, and, and why was there such an achievement gap. I believe you shot America to Me during the 2015-2016 school year and let the little light shine through 2017 and 2018. Was there a linkage between those two productions or was it a coincidence that one came right on the back of the other? It's definitely a coincidence. As America to Me was beginning to roll out and debut, 
I just started working on Let the Little Light Shine toward the end of 2017. And it was really in that year where um, the school district began to have these community meetings and there was talk going on in the South Loop neighborhood that um, the Chicago Public Schools was thinking about transforming the National Teachers Academy into this high school. And, uh, you know, a lot of rumor mills going on within the community, not a lot of true information until they started to have these community meetings going on. And that's when some of the plans started to be revealed to uh, the community there. And that's where parents like Elizabeth Greer kind of first found out about it. And, and obviously she was very upset about why the school district would target this elementary school that had been performing at a very high level and really servicing the needs of its student body population really should have been a model for a lot of uh, elementary schools in the city. And um, for CPS to be looking at closing the school and changing it into a high school was just a, a question mark that piqued my curiosity. Why would they want to do that? Usually when you're looking at school closings or transformations, there are schools that are underperforming, there are schools that are under-enrolled, there's usually some sort of uh, reasoning that you might be able to understand or, or possibly get behind, per se, even though the closing of, of a school for a community usually does create some sort of harm for that community. Uh, these are not just institutions. These are community bedrocks. Uh, so I really just wanted to understand what was going on here with, with National Teachers Academy. Well, let's take a little listen to part of the trailer for the film. So many ugly things have been said about us, about our children, about our color, about our ability to learn. When that narrative becomes the reason why they should shut you down, then it becomes personal. Because now you're talking about my kids. Tonight, a proposal to convert an elementary school into a new high school is pitting parents against parents and parents against Chicago Public Schools. The school in question, the National Teachers Academy. A high-performing academic school. There's no question that a high school is needed for this area. Chicago, the South Loop, booming real estate, exploding population. The last thing we wanted to do was steal a school from somebody. This is about gentrification. This is about tailoring to wealthy middle-class folks versus low-income families. This whole thing is a sham. What do we take stands for? Things that we believe are right. This is the moment for me that I have to stand up. Starting today, we will be ignored no longer. The last voice we heard there is Elizabeth Greer, who you mentioned earlier. She is uh, the one that was named as the plaintiff in the Greer versus Board of Education case. Tell us about some of the key people besides Elizabeth that we meet in the documentary. Well, yeah, Elizabeth is certainly one of the leaders of the parent group that was fighting to keep NTA open. Uh, she really had a right-hand person in, in Nikita Brar. Those two helped fund and, and found the Chicago United for Equity uh, group, which became a nonprofit that was really fighting for equity and, and change within Chicago public education. But also there's a, there's a number of other parents within the school itself who really were the lifeblood of the movement. One of them in particular, Audrey Johnson, who was a, a longtime resident 
of the neighborhood. One of the intricacies of this entire story was that the school NTA used to border a public housing building called the uh, Icky Homes. And Audrey was a resident of the Icky Homes. And so she had a connection to the school that was so strong because all of her children went there. And when the Icky Homes was demolished and all those families were displaced, she felt it very hard. And when she saw that something was going to happen with National Teachers Academy, basically being closed and and transformed, uh, she felt that there was another loss that was about to happen uh, and that she was about to lose something again. And she didn't want that to happen at all. So she really was one of the key parents to help mobilize and fight to keep NTA alive. I had to say also one of the educators there at National Teachers Academy, the principal, Isaac Castellaz, was very key in fighting to keep the school open. He was in a very delicate position being an administrator, uh, really couldn't be a public voice per se uh, and speak out publicly against the proposal. But, you know, I guess in his act of protest, he did allow us to come into the institution and film there. And he took great risk to do that. And it's stated in the film as to why he did that for us. That kind of leads into my next question, which is how do you navigate filming within a school system, which must be so fraught with permissions and no-go areas, you've got kind of a captive audience. I mean, the kids have to be there. So when you're filming there, there's going to be parents that say, no, I don't want my child in this. Talk to me about navigating that and also building trust with the families who, who you do feature. There's no doubt that I walked a very, very thin, tight rope in trying to get this movie filmed um, without putting Isaac's job at risk, any of the other administrators or educators' job at risk. It was something that I spoke with him at length throughout the entire process of us filming. Uh, Were we overstepping our bounds? Were we doing the right thing here? And... He always was for us filming because he felt like documenting this movement was important. It was historic. It was something that other families and residents who watch across the country could relate to and learn from. And so he really didn't want to lose that moment in time. So when you're operating on this tightrope and you know that the school district is not going to grant you the permission, even though I did ask at the very beginning about filming in the school and doing this documentary, and I never received any response back from them, which frankly kind of irritated me. You know, I I expected at least a a response back and and maybe, maybe they just thought, you know, this is just some little filmmaker here. He's making a little YouTube something, something. And (laughs) You know, not to pay too much attention of it. But they knew who I was. You know, when you go to these meetings, to these community meetings that that I filmed, you you have to sign in with the district. So they're basically kind of taking a tally of who's there 
from the media and what journalists are there, what filmmakers might be there. So, you know, I, I signed in all those times and, and in fact had one of the CPS representatives end up following me around on one of the community meetings and actually put me in a spot that wasn't really great for filming. And I wonder if they did that on purpose or not. But I attempted to try to get that permission. And, and when that didn't happen, I knew I still wanted to tell the story because it was happening and the principal was was good with us being there. So then it was about gaining the trust from the families. And so it ended up being a kind of a one-on-one type of thing through all those families. There's like 700 children that go to that school. And so we had to contact every one of them and, and let them know what we were doing. And if I happened to be filming in a classroom in a particular day, you know, those parents were alerted ahead of time. And they were told that if they didn't want their children to be filmed and to, to let us know, and I would not film their children on that particular day. And eventually all these families signed a, a release from us. So, you know, every, everything was done in that regard in the documentary landscape legally, but it took a lot of time for sure. How much veto did you allow the principal to have in the final edit? Did he take certain things out because he felt uncomfortable? And were you okay with that? Or once it was filmed, did you say, you have to trust me now? One of the things I learned from Steve and Gordon and the Cartemquin Films legacy is that the trust with the participant is so key. That is the only thing that makes these films work, really. And so you have to do everything to really make sure that you are working hand in hand with the participant. So what, what does that mean? It does mean being transparent throughout the entire process. It means kind of from a filmmaker's perspective, kind of seeding that power in a sense and really giving the participant an opportunity to, to view a cut at, when you're ready to show it. And so that's what I did with Isaac and a lot of the main participants in the movie. I gave them a cut of the movie to watch and then we talked about it. And Isaac, to his credit, he didn't have any veto of anything in the cut that he saw. Uh, He did have one moment that's not in the film anymore of a clarification of a moment that happened. Uh, But I ended up cutting that moment out. So he was good with it, which which was great. Makes me feel great. It's not necessarily about giving them an opportunity to have some veto power as a filmmaker, I still feel like you do need to have that integrity for that final cut uh, because there might be some things that are difficult for the participant to watch or things that they you know, might not understand. Why are they in the movie? And that's where you then have those conversations with them. And uh, I think those conversations are incredibly fruitful. And at the end of the day, It's not my job necessarily to make the participants feel good about having participated in the movie, but I do want them to know that I've given them a fair shake and that I've presented their story fairly. That's important to me. And uh, if they feel that at the very least, then I know that I've done my job. An inside baseball question I have in the world of documentaries, how funding works when you're documenting events that may suddenly arise from nowhere, you see it in the news and suddenly you're there filming it, there's no time to find backers. You have to, at some point, I guess, decide whether you can fund a crew, an editor, your own time and find a distributor. 
How did that work for Let the Little Light Shine? At what point did you feel like you had a full green light? I don't think I had a full green light until we were pretty much done filming. (laughs) (laughs) The majority of my funding came at the post stage. You know, uh, my movie was initially funded by ITVS, Independent Television Service, which is a public media institution, funds a lot of independent films for public media films that end up broadcasting on PBS. They were my first money in with a diversity development fund. And so I think what that did for me was at least give me the confidence that said, well, this story has some weight. You know, there's some people that believe in it and are interested in seeing how it resolves itself. And so that came in probably midway, I would say maybe a third into the way of me filming. But then a lot the rest, you're just cobbling funds along the way. You know, that's probably the one problem that's still uh, with documentary filmmaking. A lot of us are, are making this making our projects with credit cards and, and just really going out there on our own. Uh, That certainly was what I was doing. I do think that my experience that I have had in working in television paid off because, you know, I'm a cinematographer, so I shot my own film. I wouldn't necessarily consider myself an editor, but I have edited before. So I edited this film. And so those skill sets came in handy for me when I was making let the little light shine. Uh, I knew that I was going to shoot my own movie and, and basically I needed to fund some times when I wasn't able to be there on certain shoots. I, I was incredibly fortunate with my producer, Rachel Dixon. You know, she is a sound recordist also. So she did sound for like 60, 70% of the movie deferred. You know, she wasn't getting paid either during this this time frame. It's basically if we waited for the funds to happen, we would have missed the story. You know, sometimes you just have to go out there on a limb and and believe that it's all going to come together. You've been making films for well over a decade now, been in the industry, you say, for 20 years. And the last decade, we've really changed how we watch films, especially over the past two years. So what do you see as the future of documentary filmmaking? What worries you and does anything excite you? I think it's a great time for documentary film, right? I mean, there is a thirst and a hunger for these stories. And there's so many outlets for people to discover documentary. I think the thing that worries me is people like me, like who are independents, who are kind of just kind of getting their first or second films out there. How are we going to make our third film? You know, I just talked about how hard it was to make Let the Little Light Shine. Well, the majority of my funding didn't come until I was after, after I was done making, shooting the film. Um, Sustainability is a big, big issue in the documentary landscape. How do people go ahead and make their third film, their fourth films? How do they make a career of directing movies? So you hear this thing about there's a lot of appetite for these films. And, you know, you have these big streamers that are out there that are supposedly funding a lot of documentaries. Well, they are in a sense, they're funding some, but they're not sitting there and getting all of us yet. 
You know, there's still a sizable gap between the filmmakers who are in that Netflix, Hulu, Apple world, and in us who might have started in public media. And now we're looking to make our next project. And how do we bridge that gap? And I don't have the answers for that, but I know that's something that's concerning because we're seeing a lot of money being funneled into those kind of projects, not seeing the same amount being funneled into independent stories uh, and stories that aren't about a celebrity that you've heard about or aren't necessarily the hottest social issue right now. Some of these stories that are a little bit more intimate that are are beautifully done and, and poetic and things that public media will jump at. But we need these streaming companies to start thinking about looking at these those films as well. Well, in Colombia, at least, you have a very eager audience for independent and intimate stories. We have been well-trained by the True False Film Fest, so (laughs) we will always be here to watch them as long as there's funding available to make them. That's exciting. You can see the documentary Let the Little Light Shine, directed by my guest, Kevin Shaw, at this weekend's True False Film Fest, where it will be shown Friday evening at the Blue Note, Saturday afternoon at the Missouri Theatre, and Sunday afternoon at the Picture House. Kevin, thank you so much for choosing True False as your world premiere location and for taking time to chat this evening. Diana, it was great speaking with you. Thank you for having me. I always start my True False journey each year by looking through the Sundance Film Festival documentary list to see what films I hope will come to True False. Oftentimes, films that I want to see don't make it to True False for multiple reasons, but those that do are almost always on my must-see list. And this year, that included a film by filmmaker Rita Baghdadi called Sirens, an intimate coming-of-age story that follows Lebanon's first and only all-women thrash metal band, slave to sirens. And in particular, two of the band members, the founders and guitarists, Lilas Mayasi and Sherry Beshera. In a world full of stereotypes, the women of Slave to Sirens are defiant of the expectations of their own culture, the world beyond, and the thrash metal scene. For its Emmy award-winning director, who had an intercontinental upbringing between the shores of Maryland and Morocco, it was a chance to dispel the cinematic myth, showing Arab women as one-dimensional and weak. Instead, she got to tell the story of women like her. Rita Baghdadi, thank you so much for chatting to us about Sirens today. Thank you for having me. So before you went to film school, you were a competitive horse jumper, yet none of your films to date have been about that world. Are you waiting for the perfect horse jumping story? It's so funny you bring that up. I actually was working on one and it's still in the process so i'm not like able to talk about it actually but uh <laughs> because that, it's a work for hire so it's not mine to talk about but to be honest i am still waiting for the perfect horse movie because that <laughs> that one hasn't come yet well you have an eclectic portfolio of films to your name a 2018 film about the oil industry encroachment on the farmlands of western north dakota called my country no more a three-part docuseries called city rising which explored the root of the gentrification and affordable housing crisis in california and which won you an emmy for best social issue film and now sirens do you find films or do they find you oh yeah definitely films find me but For Sirens, though, I can trace the origin back years and years and years. It's like I was thinking about this movie 
well before it found me or the right time. But I definitely think that they find me and as much as you can try to force an idea. If it's not the right timing, it just won't, it won't happen. So talking about that, thinking about it years and years before the story found you or you found it, you said in another interview that it was recognition and resonance that drew you to make Sirens. Tell us about that history of why this story you were looking for for so long. So growing up in post 9-11 America as an Arab, young Arab woman with a very Arabic name that would later become world renowned for being the head caliphate of ISIS's last name. Mm. Um, I had, you know, I had a lot of prejudices about being an Arab person. And, you know, my family is in Morocco is Muslim. And I guess I've been thinking about it for a long time and feeling it for a long time. But the way that Arab people are stereotyped in at least you know, American cinema, it was deeply damaging to me. I feel like the the negative stereotypes um, were harmful and they still continue to be. And so I think for a long time, I, I've always wanted to make a coming of age film like you see in American cinema with young American girls. Why can't we have one in the Middle East or, or Morocco in the MENA region? So I think I've been wanting to make that film for a long time and never found the right, you know, or wasn't like even actively trying to find it. It just was in the back of my mind. And so the convergence of things that happened to lead to sirens, I mean, I couldn't have obviously expected it. The other thing, you know, that was going on before I discovered the band is that my father was diagnosed, my father in Morocco was diagnosed with a brain disease. So I was grappling with the idea of losing him and trying to figure out a way of being how to be okay with that, you know, because it was imminent. Um, and in that process, I was thinking about what my personal connection to Morocco, to the region, to the Middle East, North Africa region, and just being an Arab person, like, what did that really mean to me outside of my dad? Because my dad was really the connection for me. And so thinking about losing him and losing that connection, I think I was really struggling to find a connection and when I discovered the sirens, I think it was an instant connection, especially with Lilas. I saw a younger version of myself in her that was, I think I'm still trying to unpack it, to be honest. Um, but that's the recognition part, right? And so the resonance part is seeing all these themes come together when I was doing sort of just pre-interviews or I was just talking to the young women and getting to know them and learning more about their daily lives in Lebanon and seeing the convergence of themes that I thought were so resonant for me. I knew that they would be resonant for other people, you know, outside of the MENA region too, just on a human level. So that's the convergence basically. I saw that there was a lot of media coverage about the band when they released their EP called Terminal Leeches, and that was around 2018, and suddenly CNN and the BBC are picking up the story. How did you hear about it? Was it through those media outlets, or did you know about them before that? No, it was through the media outlets, yeah. I am. I grew up listening to punk and hardcore music, so I gravitate towards sort of alternative slash heavy music, I guess you call it. And I'm always looking for new music as well. And so it's kind of something that helps me 
spark inspiration just for my work and daily life. So outside of coming up with film ideas, I was looking for music and I came across a little article about the first all-female metal band from the Middle East. And I was like, really? I was like, it can't be true. There's never been. <laughs> I was like, huh? And then and then that's part of my brain was like that. And the other part was like, oh, gimmicky. You know, oh, it's a gimmick. Like they can't be good. You know, kind of your, your, your instant idea is like this man-made, quote unquote, woman-made um, idea of a thing, right? And like their music couldn't possibly be good. Then I went and listened to their EP, which they had just launched. And it was incredible. I mean, they're the raw power of their sound, like I could instantly hear, you know, all the themes I was talking about. It's like before even learning about them, I could hear the sort of emotion, their life experience, like what they'd gone through. It sort of just jumps out in the music to me. And so I think I was really drawn to that. And that's how I discovered them was through the outlets, but also by listening to their their music. Although your documentary sounds like it would fit into the genre of rock documentary, it really is a portrayal of friendship, Mm -hmm. sexuality, coming of age and finding your voice as a young woman. At what point going in did you know you were looking at a feature length documentary and that it wasn't really about the music? That's such a good question. I, in fact, at first I thought I would make a short (laughs) and I thought it would probably be about their music because that's all what I knew about them. And I I spoke at length to Leela. We had many hours long conversations. So I was really getting to know her, but I didn't know the rest of the band. And when I met them over video chat, I wanted to keep it, you know, kind of light and not too scary for them just to be like, okay, I'm going to come and, and film a little bit. Like, do, do you want me to come and film a little bit? And it, we'll just see what happens. I have no idea. I don't want you to have to commit to anything. I'm not going to commit to anything. So At first, I was like, I'll go for a week and I'll come back and I'll make a little short out of it. Well, the day I got there, I mean, Lilas invited me to stay with her in her home with her mom and her brother. And I was sleeping in her bedroom. (laughs) We were we got cozy real quick. And I just I knew I could make more than that with her. If she was willing, I saw that she would be a really compelling lead for a movie and that she was struggling with things and but I didn't know what those things were yet I had no clue about any of the LGBT angles I didn't know any of the backstory with the band I just saw her daily life struggles like electricity you know just like the things like her relationship with her mom just being a quote-unquote you know person that doesn't fit inside the box of what Lebanese women standards are and so I was like okay there's more here than just the music so I, I think it was like literally day one But I didn't know how I was going to like pitch it as a feature because I came home with actually only like four, I think I was supposed to have get six days of footage and I only got five or four because I got food poisoning and it was really debilitating. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was, it was shortly after though, I showed it to a friend of mine, Lisa Heslov, and she was like, this is beautiful. Can I show it to a friend of mine? I'm like, sure. And that ended up being Danielle Renfrew Barons, who was producer of some of my favorite docs like Queen of Versailles, Montage of Heck about Nirvana, Kurt Cobain. And she loved it so much, she wanted to show it to her partner. She just happened to be starting a company with Natasha Leone and Maya Rudolph. And that's how that happened. We literally fell in love at first sight and we started 
they've been on since day one. So um, I kind of knew at that point that the film had legs because really cool people in the industry that I admired a lot thought it had legs also. And I mean, with any Verite film, though, you really don't know what, you know, everything could fall apart or it could get better and better and better. So it was just a leap of faith at that point. So having found people that were interested back in the film industry here with a story that was more about the relationship between the band members Mm -hmm. and about LGBTQ and and their relationships. And you are filming in a pretty patriarchal community with a lot of traditional values, not a huge amount of LGBTQ tolerance. And so you're seeing the arc of the documentary maybe before the band members did. How much persuasion was involved in them letting you tell that story? Yeah, that's also a really good question because, well, you know, like you said, I didn't really know what it was going to be while I was filming it. It took maybe a year in. I mean, again, I would take trips every few months. So when I say a year, maybe it was like third trip or something and would go for like an extended period of time. But that's kind of when I think I'd have to look back at the footage, but when I think I started to, they started to really open up and, and I started to learn more about the more personal side of sexuality and their interpersonal relationships. Cause a lot of stuff before that was like going to Glastonbury, dealing with the country. Like there was a lot going on. There was a lot of plot. There was a lot of things that we were filming, but the themes really didn't start to emerge strongly until maybe about a year in. And that is when I started to think, what's this movie really about? (laughs) I know I can make a movie that doesn't include deeper, you know, like I could make the movie that I'm shooting, but we need to go deeper still. And so it just started to to become clear that they were ready to open up. and, And we just, we had such a great friendship and really kind of a sisterhood. I think they see me as like a big sister and, So it was really based on trust and there wasn't any convincing. I mean, basically I filmed what I filmed and then when it came time to edit the movie, I mean, we were still shooting as we were editing, but I really didn't know again, if the movie that I saw in my head based on what I experienced was going to translate to the edit the way that it, that it needs to for a feature doc. And so I worked with my editor and, and our supervising editor, Lindsay Utes. And I said, this is the story that I think I want to tell, you know, like, can we do it? Let's try it. And so we put together the first assembly and it was pretty clear, like, yeah, this is, this is going to work. Um, because also I, re- I really wanted to make a film that was uh, felt very in the moment and, and immersive and, and verite and not, with a lot of like talking heads and all that. And so but the crux of the story as you seen it is actually a backstory. So it's tough to make a film around a backstory when you want it to be all in the moment. So I didn't know if that was going to work. Anyway, so the the to answer your question, I didn't show the girls anything until until the cut that I was submitting to Sundance. And I didn't tell them what what we were going to be focusing on. In fact, I think Maya, for example, thought she was going to be one of the main characters. Um, So, yeah, it was a little bit of a a surprise to them, but I felt like it was important for me to just have the space to do their story justice in the way that I needed to without having their voices in my head. And so then I presented it to them and they they really loved it. I mean, I showed it to them each individually, starting with Lilas, 
because it's really her story and privately. And so they would have their opportunity to discuss with me any issues they had or concerns. And there really weren't any. <laughs> it was very, I think, I think it was a shock, you know, like Leela's cried. And, you know, I think being seen is a sometimes painful emotional experience, but overall it's been very positive. You must have been partly filming during the pandemic, which I'm guessing was not only a major challenge in getting up close and personal with your subjects, but also your subjects were in the music industry, which was now not happening any longer. Was Mm -hmm. that the biggest challenge in making Sirens or were there other unknown quantities that gave you sleepless nights? Oh my gosh, I call it a constant barrage of catastrophes. Um, Yeah, I mean, the pandemic was actually like the least of anyone's worries, in a way. Like you said, it shut down the music industry. So that was a big problem at first, because it was like, oh, didn't realize that Glastonbury was going to be like, almost the only time we'd ever see them on stage performing. Mm. And so maybe that's partly why it didn't become more of a band documentary, like a a rock doc, quote unquote, because there just wasn't the opportunity to see them perform a lot. But I think because I didn't really set out to make a rock doc, you know, I I wanted to make a coming of age film. A lot of my references are like feature films, like fiction. So I never really set out to make the traditional rock documentary. So maybe I was never going to make it. Maybe I would have if the pandemic hadn't happened. I really don't know. But that was just one of many, many, many catastrophes, obviously, starting with the the financial collapse, and they're still on capital control, under capital control. Um, They can't take more than $100 out. I mean, it changes, but last time I was there, you can't take more than $100 out of the ATM. You can't go to the bank and withdraw your money. The banks have control of your money. They will not give it to you. So, I mean, that's just one thing that they were dealing with. And then the revolution happened, which at first was very hopeful and very inspiring. And then, of course, like many of them, it turned violent and ugly and scary and, you know, divisive. And um, and then then the explosion happened. Yeah, the huge port explosion in 2020. Yeah, who could have ever foreseen that, you know? Were you there when that happened? I was actually scheduled to be there, mm-hmm. and the place that I stay was destroyed. I usually would stay at like one of a few Airbnb apartments that are run by the same woman, and they are right behind. They're in a neighborhood um, on the border, sort of of Jemaze and Marmachael, which is kind of a touristy, but like that's like the hip area where you can walk around a lot, and that's right behind the port. And so I was scheduled to be there and and that place got destroyed. Um, But as luck would have it, I had so randomly, I don't remember why, but I changed my flight for like four days or six days after. And so I ended up going, I I kept that flight. But yeah, I would have been there otherwise. Mm -hmm. So as I said at the beginning, your film premiered at Sundance a couple of months ago, but that was a virtual festival. So is this the first festival where it will be shown with real live people in an audience in a theater actually yeah (laughs) yeah excited false will be yeah i'm really excited um yeah i I didn't really think about that and you'll be here for the weekend that's right 
Well, there are three showings of Sirens at this weekend's True Fast Film Fest. The first one is at 10.15pm tonight at the Blue Note, Friday morning at the Missouri Theatre and Saturday afternoon at the Picture House. And if you want to hear the music of Slave to Sirens, you can find their EP, Terminal Leeches, on Spotify. Rita Baghdadi, thank you so much for taking time to chat and we will see you in Columbia this weekend. Thank you so much. really appreciate it. That is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests this evening, True False Artistic Director Chloe Trainer and film directors Kevin Shaw and Rita Baghdadi. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.